Well, good morning, everyone. So good to be with all of you this morning. Again, uh, just thrilled to be able to gather together uh, so that we not only celebrate the wonders of God stirred up by these celebrations of who God is and who we get to be in his story, but also being able to enter into the word of God where he reveals to us uh, what this life that he has given us is all about. And we get to dig into what it means to live in the freedom that is God now so that our lives will not only uh, experience freedom from God, but also be freedom for the world. So it's exciting what we get to do. I mean, it is really exciting. And I'm excited to be here to journey with you through what we are stepping into. As many of you already know, we are in the book of Romans. Uh, We've just gotten started there. Uh, We are uh, engaging in this letter that was written to the church in Rome because we've been traveling with Paul in the story of the book of Acts, and Paul is currently sitting down to pen this letter to the church in Rome, and so we are stepping in, sitting next to him, listening in as God inspires him to write this letter, not only for the church in Rome, but also for all of the people of God since then to now as it becomes the inspired word of God. So, Very, very exciting what we get to step into. As you may remember, if you've been around, Paul is writing to the church in Rome because he has decided to move his headquarters from Antioch to Rome because as the gospel is expanding in the Roman Empire, Paul happens to be a Roman citizen, something hard to come by because of his birth. And so it's a great opportunity for Paul strategically to say, I can and have the opportunity to go live in Rome. I'm going to choose to do that so that I would be central to where the gospel needs to move out into a reality that is currently the expanding uh, uh, Roman Empire, right? And so this is a strategic move on Paul's part. In order to move to Rome and engage with the church there, he is writing a letter in some ways as an introduction because he was not the planter of this church. It was Peter who planted this church as far as we know from history. When Peter planted it, it was still in the Jewish context before the Gentiles had integrated into the story. So it started as a primarily Jewish church, uh, in, in fact, exclusively really, until some Gentiles were grafted in in their conversion. So Paul doesn't know these people in terms of the kind of relationship he's had with some of the churches he's planted, but he knows many of them. So he's writing his introduction. He's also writing to clarify the realities of the gospel as he understands it, and it's been revealed to him so that when he gets to Rome, they're all on the same page and they can move forward. Now, the complication, as you remember, is that he's writing into a scenario in a church where there is some tension in the church where they're trying to figure themselves out. Why? Because it started Jewish, then it became uh, Gentile in part as a minority. Then Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome in uh, the late 40s, 48, 49 AD, and uh, the Gentiles took over the church because they had to, they had no choice. The Jewish people have returned now, and it's now a Gentile-led church with Gentile leadership with Jewish leaders who were the leaders, and the leaders are trying to figure out the leaders, and the people are trying to figure out the people, and they're kind of in this space, and they all yet belong to the same story, the story of the gospel now. They also experience the gospel very differently because though they have encountered the grace of God, the Jewish people have experienced it as a culmination of God's faithfulness over a long history of storytelling and revealing. The Gentiles have experienced it as God's mercy and grace uh, over a long history of 
zero revelation and understanding, right? And so it's like, we don't even belong to God yet. Now we do. How awesome. We've always belonged to God and he promised and he did. And that's awesome. And so what Paul is doing as he's writing this letter while clarifying the gospel is also using these very different stories as a beautiful way to demonstrate the beautiful fullness of the gospel where all of them bring parts of the story of the gospel to the table. So he has done that in this introduction of the letter, right? And he talked about God's faithfulness to the people that were Jewish and yet how that faithfulness was also to the people who were Gentile. And he talked about the mercy of God and the grace of God and God's righteousness revealed through the Gentiles and yet how that mercy and grace and righteousness was also for the Jewish people. So bringing them together. And it ended that little section with that beautiful unpacking of the the, the verse that says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of salvation to all who are being saved, right? And then he writes these words in that very same space. Listen to this uh, beautiful, beautiful kind of uh, 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 capturing of all his thoughts so far. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we all go, oh, it's so good. I mean, God's justice, righteousness, mercy, and grace revealed in the gospel, along with his faithfulness. Are you not excited? I am too. And then Paul writes the next few words that follow that beautiful moment. The righteous shall live by faith. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Whoa! Are you shocked? I'm a little shocked, right? I mean, isn't it beautiful? Like, oh, God's righteousness is revealed, his faithfulness, his mercy and grace, and his wrath toward all the unrighteous because they have suppressed the truth. I mean, it feels like the roller coaster in Disney, uh, the, the Everest roller coaster. Have you ever ridden that thing? You know, it's a weird roller coaster because it goes forward like roller coasters are supposed to, right? And it goes really fast and you scream a bit. And then you, you head toward this cliff thing and you're like, we're going to die. And then it stops and you're like, oh, thank goodness it's over. And then it goes backwards. And you're like, backwards? Nobody told me. This is completely inappropriate. And so it's flying backwards now and you're trying to look back and screaming and you're not sure. And that abrupt forward movement to a stop and then sudden backward movement, that's how this felt to me the first time I read it. Is you're coming into the beautiful revelation of God's righteousness and faithfulness only to come to a screeching halt right at this. The wrath of God and then backwards into unrighteousness is revealed and you're like, ah! Why is this so dramatic? Well, partly because I'm going nuts on the stage, but partly because (laughs) here's why, right? Because when we say the wrath of God, it conjures up some images for us, right? Good and right images, don't get me wrong. They're usually out of Revelation chapter 8 and 9 or Matthew chapter 24, where mountains are being thrown at people and lightning is striking. We call it fire and brimstone, right? And it's legit. It actually happens. It's in the Bible. So those are not just images we make up. We read them and we're like, whoa. In fact, in Revelation chapter 9, it says that when God's wrath is fully exercised in its active reality and literally the mountains are falling on uh, things and in waves and there's lightning and there's scorpions that are really giant and you're like, ah. it says uh, the people, they, they search for death. 
They want to die. They're like, this is so horrible. I want to die. And it says, but death did not find them. It's like they're coming like, please, I want to die. And death goes, God's not done actually with his wrath. So I can't take you yet. I mean, that's the, that's the images that are conjured up. And they are, they are right. This is one of the expressions of what God's wrath towards sin is. And so when we hear that, God's righteousness is revealed, God's grace and mercy, God's faithfulness, and God's wrath. We're like, oh, God's wrath. Why would Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, move directly from this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness and grace and mercy and righteousness displayed in the gospel and then immediately go straight into this reality of wrath? Well, when you first begin to understand the gospel and you understand what the gospel reveals, the story, the redemptive story of God, you realize how important it is that God's wrath toward us is also realized in its fullness in order to understand the fullness of the gospel. See, what this shows us first and foremost is something about us, that we need to know if we are going to be able to experience fully the magnitude of God's grace and mercy toward us. We cannot know God's mercy and grace in any way fully unless we first understand what the story of God, the redemptive story of God reveals about who we are, who we were before Christ, and who we are as a human race without Christ. If we do not see that, we do not know the magnitude of the grace and mercy of God. And so what does this reveal? It says, Paul is saying the gospel, the story of God reveals that God is faithful, God is righteous, God is merciful, God is gracious, and he is these things toward us because we were the recipients of something so horrid that we need to understand our depravity in order to understand God's wonder. And so Paul here unpacks the depravity of mankind as it relates to God's righteousness right as he comes out of saying that the, the Gentile world uh, revealed to us God's righteousness and, 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 and righteousness is beautiful, but in righteousness we also realize our unrighteousness. And so look what he says. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It is on page 1040, 1040, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide at the door. Page 1040, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is where we're going to hang out for a while this morning. Watch what it says. So I've already read this part. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now look what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that that they are without excuse, they being us, the human race. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So here's the sort of general unpacking. He goes, look, the reason God's wrath is affected toward mankind is because mankind became the enemy of God. 
We exchanged, we, 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 we suppressed actually, we suppressed the realities of God and we decided to live for ourselves starting with Adam and Eve and then the progressive reality of that as sin entered our story. And so he goes, look, everything is plain to mankind but yet mankind lives in deception and pursues self. And he's talking about all of us. So our tendency to go, yep, they sure do. It needs to, needs to calm down. Because what we ought to say is, yes, we sure do. Yes, we sure do. But for the grace of God, right? Now watch. Now he's going to describe in the cultural context that he's talking about particular examples of how this tangibly plays out in terms of our choices. And you'll see the centrality around self here. Watch this. It says, first of all, claiming to be wise, they became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we see a first exchange taking place that the human heart makes. It says, I have a creator that I was designed to bring glory to and to glorify. And instead, I am going to find other things that are much more tangible to me and make me feel much more relatable. And I'm going to glorify those things. In this cultural context, Paul, speaking to a church that's Jewish and Greek, uses a tangible reality that in Rome, they would have walked out their door and seen right away. Paul wanted them to leave hearing this letter in church and walk out and go, see, 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 it's, it's everywhere. And so he said, look, here's what we've done. The wonder and glory of God, we've exchanged for things that we give glory to now, things that we worship now instead of God. The only difference between the Roman Empire and the tangibility of this example and us is the actual tangible things that we worship, Right? It's the same thing. If Paul were writing today, he wouldn't say they carved little things, statues into images of birds and men. Because back in that culture, you'd have walked out the door and there would have been a bunch of little statues everywhere. And you would have walked past any temple in the city of Rome or any other Roman city and they would have been bowing down to these things and calling them names, nice names about what they do and worshiping them. That's a tad weird for us. We don't see that very often because we live in the Western culture where we have moved past that kind of stuff, quote unquote right? We don't worship little statues anymore. We worship cars and houses and money and job titles and many other things that we have equated to the things that matter in life. So Paul would just write a different list. He'd say they've exchanged the glory of God for glory of, and then he'd fill in a different list. So the reality is, here's what he's saying. An exchange takes place when instead of glorifying God and giving God glory, we glorify things and give things glory. Then he says this, not only did they do that, but look down, look down here, verse 26. They exchanged natural, I'm sorry, verse 24, let's go to verse 24. Um, verse 25, there it is. It's, it's a lot of verses. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who has blessed them forever. So here's what it says. Not only did we exchange glorifying God to glorifying other things, but we actually exchanged the wonder of the truth of God for the wonder of our truth. We elevated ourselves to being the gods and so we glorify ourselves. And so we say we're not only glorifying things instead of God, we're 
glorifying self instead of God. I am the creature, but I'm going to make myself creator. And so in doing that, I exchange God's truth for my truth. And my truth is by definition when opposed to God's truth a lie. And so it's like, no, no, no. I'm going to roll with what I think and what I feel and what I see and what I observe because I'm that cool. And he said, that's what human beings did. So they exchanged truth for a lie. And they exchanged God for self. And then the third exchange taking place here in verse 26 now. They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, when we read that one, let's just pause here for a second. Because that, that one in our cultural context, uh, we don't have to exchange a whole lot there, right? Well, what it means, because they would have known in Rome, but we know nothing about this. We actually on this one have the opposite, where we're like, oh, there it is. Let's pause here. This is the big issue of this passage. If you read ahead of time, this was the only verse you were interested in talking about, right? And that would be a great miss too. Because Paul is not trying to get into details here about political or reality issues. He's talking about three exchanges. And this exchange, here's the deal. This exchange is exchanging what God intended for mankind in physical intimacy in the covenant of marriage between two people to what? To glorify God and to represent what it means to be a God that is one God and yet exists in community. The triunity and beauty of God. So God said this. I'm going to take two individual people. I'm going to create a covenant within which they live. And they're going to come together emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And in that coming together, it is going to display oneness. In fact, I'm going to say this about them. They once were two, but now they are one. The intention of the physical connections we have in the covenant of marriage is to display the oneness of God, to experience the oneness of God, and to be a carrier of the glory of God. It is meant to be not something we crave or need, but something we give and experience. So what he's saying here is we exchanged what was a natural, beautiful display of God. We exchanged it for some version other than that. And so if we're fair, what Paul is saying here is any twisted version of physical intimacy is an exchange. And if you don't think that can happen inside a marriage, you're dead wrong. Because if we come at this because I have needs and I have cravings and I have stuff and this is, and I'm frustrated because, and we've all been there, then we are actually exchanging what is meant for God to exchange it for what is meant for us. It becomes about me. Now, Paul will say, when you walk out the door, if you want to see a tangible, immediate display of this, just like with the statues, the point wasn't the statues. The point was that's a great example of how it's going on. He goes, when you walk out here into the streets of Rome, the teenage girls are being given to the gladiators because, you know, there's good fruit that comes from that and DNA is awesome. The people are exchanging in the temples, all sorts of stuff, and I mean, when we talk unnatural, we've got a great example here of even from a biological perspective how things get twisted. That's what he's doing here. Now, because this is a cultural issue for us and because 
we are curious because we are dealing with this in our world. Next week, we will take an entire week and spend time on this passage and talk about what the implications of this are in the areas of heterosexuality and homosexuality and all of that. We will spend time there so that you don't go, they skipped it. I can't believe it. Because it is an important issue for us to, to, to gain perspective on so that we can walk well in the way that we love and the way that we care and the, and the truth that we bring, right? But that's next week. This week, what, what matters is this. Three exchanges that, that display our depravity. We exchange God's glory for the glory of things. We exchange God's truth for our truth. And we exchange God, displaying God in our human connection and specifically in our oneness of physical oneness to an exchange for selfishness. What I need, what I want, and how this relates to me. And so in this, it displays who we really are without the grace of God. And so here's what, here's what Paul's saying at face value. Here's what he's saying. If you cannot see that the gospel reveals the wrath of God toward mankind's unrighteousness, you cannot see the grace and mercy of God, period. You have to understand the depravity of man in order to understand the grace of God. And so the gospel not only reveals the mercy, grace, righteousness, and faithfulness of God, it reveals about us our true reality of who we are and therefore the fact that we ought to be recipients of the wrath of God. And when we get that, we're like, oh, oh, I get grace now. I see who I was, who I am, and who God has made me, and that's beautiful. And if that's all this passage revealed, that would be enough, wouldn't it? Great, thank you for coming, awesome. Man, I'm in awe of God's grace, but this passage has just gotten started. Because that's just, the, that's just the quick bounce. It does say that, that's clear. What else does it say? See, what Paul's gonna be doing here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not just revealing things about us, but he is constantly re revealing things about God. Because when we see God for all that he is and the goodness of God, our hearts are stirred to worship and then we find ourselves submitted to God. And so all along from the beginning, he has been sharing with us things to say, do you wanna know that God is good? Do you wanna know that God is good? Well, watch this. God has been faithful all along. Wow, he's good, check. Wow. God has been gracious. Wow, that's good. God has been merciful. Oh, he's so good. God is righteous. Yes, he's a good God. See, what the gospel reveals to us over and over again is that God is good. So how is this? God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. Oh, check, God is good. I don't think so, right? Oh, no, yes. Oh, absolutely. You know why? You know what this passage shows us about God's character? Here it is. He is and will always be totally intolerant of sin. He is and will always be totally intolerant of sin and unrighteousness. Now, when I first say that, half of us just went like, I'm still confused how that's good. You know why? Because we've been bred to believe that grace and mercy is the effecting of tolerance. When I'm tolerant of the people around me, when I coexist with everyone, then I'm affecting grace and mercy. But when I'm not tolerant, I'm judge and judge is inappropriate. So what that makes God is judge, which by the way, he is, but we'll get to that another time, okay? Different kind of judge than we are because he happens to be perfect. But here's the idea that when we think of God as intolerant towards sin, intolerant toward unrighteousness, that doesn't make him feel good. That makes him feel bad. 
It makes him feel unfair because, I mean, don't you get it? I'm struggling here. But here's the thing. The reason we think God's intolerance towards sin doesn't make him good is because we misunderstand sin. Why is God intolerant towards sin and unrighteous? Always, always intolerant towards sin and unrighteousness. Do you know why? What is the fruit of sin and unrighteousness? It is death every time. There is no exception to that rule. Let me say that again. There is no exception to that rule. Sin births death every time. Maybe not immediately, maybe not seemingly right away, maybe it takes a while, but it will always produce death. It will never produce life. It will never produce freedom. It will always produce death. It will always produce bondage. And the God I serve and the God you serve will not tolerate anything that births death and bondage. He won't because he loves us. And so if he tolerates sin, he tolerates death. He tolerates bondage. Now, do not confuse tolerance of something with patience with something. The Bible speaks, even in the book of Romans, as God having a forbearance toward our sin. A forbearance means patience, right? He is patient with our insanity. Do you know why? You know why he's patient with it? Because we might say, well, he's patient, he lets it go, and therefore he's tolerant of it. No, no, he's not tolerant of it at all. He's patient with it, here's why. Because so often, you know, you watch the news like I do, especially these days, and you're like, take me now. (laughs) Take me. This is insane. This is insane. I'm going to throw up, right? And so the world is a dark place in every arena possible. Okay, And so you look at that and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so terrible. And then we ask this little question, why does God allow this? Well, I'll I'll tell you why he's patient with our sin. Because until we're redeemed, we are sin. So if he destroys sin, he destroys us. Let me say that again. Until we are redeemed by the gospel, we are sin. We are not just affected by sin. We are the children of wrath. And if he kills sin, he kills us. So the fact that he waited until 2000, whatever, or 19, whatever, for you to come to an awakening of the gospel was a patience that cost you your eternal life. Didn't cost you, he gave it to you. Cost you your eternal death. So if he decided in 1806 that he was done with his patience with sin, you and I would be damned. If it was 1302 or AD 47, if it was before the coming of Jesus, there would be no coming of Jesus. When is it that we would say, God, now's a good time just to kill it all? Because I'm certainly fine. Because I'm no longer sin. I'm righteousness in Christ. What about all those that he yet has made his that he will pursue and bring to himself? What a gracious gift that our God is patient without sin. Yet, what a gracious gift that our God is intolerant of it. Because if he tolerated sin, he tolerates death. And if you serve a God that is tolerant of death and bondage, then he is not a good God. This reveals to us that God's goodness is that he will always be intolerant of sin and his wrath will always be directed towards sin because your enemy is not God, your enemy is sin. This is where we misunderstand. This is why this is so difficult, right? We think, we think, that it rolls this way. We sin, then we get caught, then the boss punishes us. The boss might be the parent or God or whoever. But we never think to ourselves, we sin, we die. So if the boss stops us from sinning, he stops us from dying. We never think that way. And that's what this reveals. God is good because he's intolerant of sin. 
Trust me, you want God to be intolerant of sin and unrighteousness, always. His grace is not his tolerance. His grace is his patience and his redemptive work of taking on our sin. Now, if that's all this passage reveals, that would be enough, wouldn't it? It reveals our depravity. It reveals God's beauty of his intolerance towards sin because sin is death and God hates death. And so he is against our sin and against sin in us. And he is working so that it would be taken from us. That would be awesome. But then this also reveals something about God's wrath, which then tells us something about our sin, which helps us understand both as people who follow Jesus, if you're here and you know Jesus, and people that might not if you don't yet, and going, oh, this is a new paradigm about sin and what it does and God and what he does. Watch what it says. In the book of Romans, right after the first exchange, it says, remember in verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images remember, uh, re- resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And they suppressed the truth. Now God says, therefore, verse 24, God, here's his wrath. Here comes his wrath. God sent fire and brimstone on them and burned them until they were dead. No, it doesn't say that. That's what you would think it would say because this is about God's wrath, isn't it? Except here's another take on God's wrath that is revealed in this passage that is very important for us. Take a look. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here's what God did. You ready? He just let them live in their ways. Let us live in our ways. That's it. Here's the wrath of God. Active wrath of God, fire and brimstone. Passive wrath of God. All right. You want to roll that way? Let sin do what sin does. That is the scariest place on planet earth for us as humans. Look, he does it three times. Look at this. Verse 26 For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So in each exchange we make, God gives us up to that exchange. We exchange truth for a lie, God gives us up for that. We exchange uh, uh, the beauty of intimacy for the perversion of intimacy, God gives us over to passions. We exchange God's glory for the glory of things, and God gives us over to the passions of our soul and the insanity of our bodies. Take a look at this, look at this. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, all God did was he took his hands off the equation, stopped convicting, stopped correcting, stopped transforming, and just said, go. Do it your way, kiddo. This is the wrath of God revealed. The wrath of God revealed is that God let us live the way we wanted to live, and that displayed death and bondage. Watch, look what it says here. Look at the next verse. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Like, please stop. It is a horrid list, is it not? When we are left to ourselves outside of the gracious 
intervention of God, both in our soul rescue for eternity and in our daily rescue through intervention of correction, conviction, and transformation, what we turn into is death and bondage. So God is showing us here, my wrath in its passive form is to let you live in sin. My grace is to convict you of sin, correct your sin, and transform through the things that I use to show you your sin. See, we thought it was the opposite. I sin, he doesn't show up, I get away with it. No, no, you sin and get away with it. That should scare you half to death because that is an active display of the most dangerous space we could possibly live in. Look what he says. Here's where it goes all the way. Those, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The ultimate display of our arrogance as human beings is that we do this. Ready? We go do what we want despite knowing someone told us not to. And when we get away with it, instead of realizing that getting away with it is a, is a passive wrath of God, we think that's our freedom and we celebrate our freedom. Oh, look at me. I can do whatever I want and nobody tells me differently. Oh, that's so free. You're so free. And we celebrate it. We don't celebrate it because we love horrid things. We celebrate it because horrid things, when we do them and get away with them, feel like freedom. Don't your kids feel that way? Mine do. I love my kids. They love Jesus, but they're all looking at 18, 19, 20 as a, as a space of freedom, aren't they? Oh gosh, that I would get there and I would be out of the eye of my parents, the watchful eye. No more lectures. No more, no more telling me what to eat. No more telling me what to do. No more telling me to finish my homework. I can go where I want, do what I want live the way I want. Now, I love Jesus, so I'm going to do it well because I'm just that smart. But my, my poor old parents, they just don't know fully. Every, every human feels this way. My freedom is when I'm finally released from the authority that is around me. My kids believe secretly that as soon as I am no longer over them on a daily basis, they will have more freedom. But that is not actually a truth. They will have less freedom because they will be held to standards that I'm not there to help them with. And they should be dead scared of that space, not excited about it, but this is what we do as humans. My freedom is the lack of authority when God says my wrath is when my, I take my hands off and leave you to yourself. Lack of authority is the wrath of God. <laughs> what? Yep. Your safety net is God's love in his correction. So here's what that means. We are at our safest when God is convicting us of our sin regularly through the Holy Spirit, where he is revealing it to us through his word, and where we are in biblical community where people have the courage to tell us we're foolish or to check in on us and say, that seemed foolish, what's going on? We are at our safest when our sin is regularly being revealed, regularly being convicted, regularly being corrected, and we are experiencing the transformation and freedom from sin, we are not at our freest when we get away with stuff. And what this reveals to us is that God's mercy 
is not only that he has rescued our soul and redeemed our future and restored our purpose, but his mercy is that every day he convicts us of sin and unrighteousness, that he brings correction to it, reveals truth in the word, gives us biblical community to speak into each other, and we find ourselves being drawn out of sin into righteousness. That is the goodness of God. And so in this beautiful passage, Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Rome and to us. Oh, God is so good that you were a child of wrath and while you were his enemy, he took on your wrath and saved your soul and redeemed your future. Wow. God is so good that he does not tolerate sin in us and so in so doing tolerate death, but he loves you so much that he doesn't tolerate sin so that you will not die. And God is so good that he corrects you regularly, convicts you regularly, and gives you biblical community to speak in regularly because that's where you're safe. And here we are trying to stay under the radar when God says, get on it with each other because this is your freedom. There's a verse, um, a verse, a line in, a, in one of my favorite poems written by John Donne called Better My Heart, Three-Person God. And the last two lines in the poem say this, Never shall I be chaste, lest, I, lest you ravish me. Never free, lest you imprison me. So you see, here's what that means. I will never be pure until you violate me. Yikes. And I will never be free until you imprison me. When God imprisons us, we are free. When God releases us, that is the wrath of God. And we are bound. May we live our lives in the clarity that God's authority in our lives, including the authorities he places in our lives, is our freedom, not our bondage, and that God's grace is more than we can imagine because our deserving of his wrath is clear, and yet we are recipients of his mercy. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so good that you rescue our souls despite our depravity, redeem our future and restore our purpose, that you, that you constantly and consistently demonstrate an intolerance toward unrighteousness so that we might find you to be a God who is constantly convicting, correcting, and transforming us so that we might not live in sin, and that you have shown us clearly that your intervention in our lives, your discipline in our lives, is actually our freedom, not our bondage. May we submit ourselves in a new way to you and to those around us that you have placed in our lives to be in our, in our corner by being authorities over us, whether it is our brothers and sisters in biblical community that we are to submit to one another or whether it is in the beautiful relationships that you've established of husband, wife, parent, child, elder church, whatever it is, God, you've established all these spaces where in their, in, their, in their beautiful form, they are safeties for us. May we not seek to get away with stuff, but seek to reveal stuff so that we might find ourselves free from sin that produces death and bound by you that produces life. God, thanks for this passage. Thanks for all that it reveals. Help us to live free 
in these truths, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.